We were down at Maggie's bar, telling stories if we had one. Someone fired the old jukebox up, song it sure was a sad one. Teardrop rolled down Bubba's nose from the plane the song was inflicting. And all at once he dropped to his feet, and just like somebody kicked him, Bubba shot the jukebox last night, said he played a sad song he didn't like. Went to the cup and got it forty-five. Bubba shot the jukebox last night. Bubba ain't never been accused of being mentally stable. So we did not draw an easy breath till he laid that colt on the table. Hung his head till the cop showed up. Tried to drive it out of Marge's. We told him, don't you play dumb with us, boy. We know damn well what the charge is. Bubba shot the jukebox last night. Said that his sad song he didn't like. Went to the truck and got a 45. Bubba's at the jukebox last night. The sheriff arrived with his bathroom on. Confrontation was a crimson one. He shook his head and said, Bubba boy, you always was a dance one. Reckless discharge of a gun. That's what the officers are claiming. How about hollering out reckless hell? I hit just what I was aiming. Bubba shot the jukebox last night. Said he played a sad song he didn't like. Went into the truck and got a 45. Bubba shot the jukebox last night. Well, he could not tell right from wrong through the teardrops in his eyes. Beyond the shadow of a doubt, it was a justifiable homicide. Hello, folks. I'm back. I was gone last week. But I'm back now. I hope you missed me, certainly. When am I converting to Eastern Orthodox? No, thank you. Why would I do that? Baffling. I've said multiple times, Christianity is cashed. Christ, of course, is live and will always be alive, lives within all of us, blah, blah, blah. But the vocabulary, the social technology of Christianity, uh, it what does it represent anymore? It represents a uh, reactionary, uh, it either represents literal Satanism in the United States, I would argue, American uh, Protestantism, which now encompasses Catholicism and pretty much every other uh, Christian doctrine, is broadly a satanic worship. Satan it's a because what is satanic worship? What's the idea behind Satanism? Right? It's not necessarily that you believe Satan is real, because that would be an incredibly bad bet. Like if you believed in Christian cosmology, then you would know backing Satan is backing the wrong horse. Satanism is usually just a metaphor for selfishness, right? Like Satan is the fallen rebel angel who would not kneel. He, who, he said it was better to reign in hell, right? 
Well, what is what is the American project if not the 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 uh, attempt to reign in hell? That's what it is. We're reigning in hell. Our our, our Christian Americans are fighting for the right to live and reign in hell. A literal hell, as you can see from the uh, temperatures globally happening right now. It, like changing my very narrow, specific, totally culturally inculcated uh, ideas of what I want, desires, challenging, changing my uh, matrix of uh, of consumption and uh, and preference, the 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 little habit trail mission of treat uh, accrual that I have instead of any kind of like real purpose. I'm going to consecrate that as literal Christian, as literally God's will. What the fuck is that? That's Satanism. I'm sorry. And like, what is Eastern Orthodox? But that same premise now grafted onto a totally postmodern bullshit, uh, artificial version of like pre-Christian uh, society. Like, I guess the Dugan argument is that like Russia is different because they showed up late because they had communism. Like they aren't tainted. They aren't turned into commodities like us. They aren't turned into little uh, consumer Satanists like us. But if you look at how the countries uh, run, you look at what the uh, how power is accrued and maintained, it's through the same structures that dominate everywhere. Because Fukuyama was right, fundamentally, about the end of history. His problem was one of uh, ideology. He so deeply believed that capitalism and democracy were uh, the same thing, that the one was the embodiment of the other, uh, that his idea of the end of history is a triumphant democratic capitalism. But that's not what has triumphed. That's not what ended history. Uh, what ended history was just good old-fashioned capitalism. And the way that different cultures uh, acclimate themselves to that varies based on pre-existing structures. So, yes, we have democratic capitalism in the West where the process of building these states was, was uh, lubricated with the blood of untold, expropriated and exploited uh, colonial subjects. It's not going to be the same for countries that never had that experience of modernization, where there, where like the polity itself had to take that on the chin, like Ch Russia, like China, or countries like India, where it never really happened, where you've still got feudal fucking social relations in the countryside. But the thing these people, all, these countries, all have in common, and the thing that would validate Fukuyama if he could just accept the terms of his uh, his correctness. Uh, but he couldn't do that without uh, confronting the reality of what he'd worshipped his whole life. Because the, the real trick of capitalism in the West is that it brought with it real liberation. Marx wrote about that better than anybody. It, it brought these notions of individual autonomy and human right 
that that asserted every subjective human life in the face of its social structure, which is something that uh, that other countries could not, and other, uh, I'm sorry, not other countries, other uh, modes of production, other social relations of production could not sustain. There, people had to be uh, grist for a mill. Capitalism said, no, we're all ends to ourselves, which is revolutionary and, 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 and uh, liberating. Yes, in like a satanic way, liberating the e ego, but also in a humanistic way, liberating us from the need to be dominated by one another and alienated and separated from one another. And that is, but that was only if this explosion had been harnessed to a project of socialism which was alive for a while and is now dead. Capitalism triumphed, as Fukuyama said, but what that triumph was, was those energies unleashed and turned into, uh, yeah, satanic self-worship. So yeah, like Christ still lives, obviously. But Christianity is dead. And because it'll be it'll be Christ among others who will appear to those in need at these times of crisis and are appearing every day in one guise or another. But it will not be socially reaffirmed as Christianity as we understand it. As it is as it's legible to other people, because we know what those words mean to each other. Forget what they mean to us, what they mean to each other, because we can't have a private language. So if Christianity is going to be a live wire, we have to take as read its cultural baggage. And honestly, that's the same reason that I don't think we're going to see socialism or communism as we understand them. Because it's it's the same process has degraded and deformed those symbols and meanings as have Christianity. It's uh, like the, the fantasy, the, 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 it's the mirror of, of socialism. Like the socialism is the attempt to materially substantiate Christianity. And both of those projects and vocabularies have collapsed in the face of pure extraction, pure domination. Oh God, the banana discourse. I think, I mean, we know that problem's going to solve itself. Are you kidding? The idea that this is a thing that any uh, anybody alive is going to have to deal with, what do we do about bananas? It's It serves the purpose that all discourse about politics serves. It is to, uh, it is to create an illusion of forward momentum when what you're actually doing because the sword momentum is is for everyone to look at and you know participate in and kind of trick themselves into uh, oozing into because well you know these are important questions blah 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 but of course they're important questions for people in power which no one is uh, so what we're left with 
is a real motivation because obviously that can't be the real motivation because we're not, we don't have any stakes and we can't answer these questions. We cannot resolve these sort of debates, right? We know that. Because those sort of debates uh, are, are summed up as arguments, right? And both sides has a, uh, a, uh, a ace in the hole, rhetorically, that cannot be overcome. The anti-banana people can say this is an unsustainable social model and no realistic attempt to save the vast majority of humanity from destruction can uh, accommodate that level of just uh, instant consumer access to any commodity in the world. Correct. But the response to that, you've got to work with people uh, who currently exist to try to build political coalitions, and they don't want to hear that they're not going to be able to have the things they like in their life. Those are both absolutely correct. You can't argue one is the other is right. So what you end up doing is psychologizing the other side and saying, well, you're saying this because you're a bourgeois piece of shit who doesn't care about, uh, you know, either common folk ways in the one way in one on one side of it or, you know, the oppressed third worlders on the other. And it's a way, therefore, to demonstrate you're different and better than they are. That's it. It's a marketplace for attention and esteem. That's what that question is for. So I don't give a shit. I have no answer. But like that is a debate you have when you're trying to pretend that you're doing something you're not, which is deliberate politically instead of go look at me, which is all it is. Look at me for having the right opinion, caring the right amount about the common people. I don't really like bananas anyway. But yeah, that, I mean, the same people who are having this debate, they all are on the same page about where climate change is and where, you know, uh, the trajectory of global uh, resources is. So they all know but I apparently can't say it out loud, that this problem is going to solve itself. We should go to Milwaukee for the RNC. If we're around and I'm alive, we will. Got to come home. We were going to go to Chicago. We were going to go to Milwaukee for the DNC in 2020 when we were thinking Bernie was going to accept the fucking nomination in the, the city of sewer socialism. My God, it would have been something. Owned... Owned. But I mean, it's fun, you know. Uh, so we got owned by that uh, experience, obviously. And now we're in the aftermath of it. And we're all trying to make sense. And that's what I'm doing here. Trying to make sense of where I am and what I'm supposed to do. And it's... I can't help thinking it's not the right thing, you know? I should be doing something else. But also a lot of what I am doing and 
and involved with feels right. So I can only go with the day-to-day signals, you know, that pull me in one direction or another. Because I can interrogate that all day, but I will never get some sort of, uh, like, truly uh, objective assessment. It will always be a self-motivated uh, indulgence, either either a self-loving or a self-hating indulgence. I don't sweat it because I truly do believe we're all saved, fundamentally, in one way or another, ways that aren't going to be compatible and overlapping to, to totalize and say this or that. I think it's going to be bespoke, bespoke salvation for everyone. But a cop-out, right, for the people suffering. True. Absolutely. But suffering now could only be uh, intervened with at a, at a social level. And how do you participate in that? Not in a way that can be translated into uh, fucking entertainment. I'm sorry. Because entertainment entertains above all else. Everything is subject to that imperative. And so even if you think you're approaching these questions from a truly like earnest position of wanting to stop suffering, the suffering you can stop is going to be a lot closer than uh, a, a political campaign right now. I mean, it, uh, someone's talking about I don't want to relitigate 2020 too much, but uh, somebody's talking about how Bernie telling people not to vote once the lockdown started kind of screwed him. I think by that point it was already over. It's, it's usually over way earlier than any kind of uh, post-mortem will ever say. I said this about the Howard Dean scream. The Dean scream did not end Dean's campaign. It was just the gravestone of a campaign that died on that day when enough people showed up and were like, I can't handle the, the possibility of sending a liberal hippie against George W. Bush, given what the country looks like, given how much they love war and how scary they are. The, the scream was just him recognizing it was over and hollering his barbaric yawp. And God bless him for doing it. You know, if he hadn't done that, we wouldn't have forgotten it entirely. He left his name in the history books, even though he's now a complete goofball. In the same way, I think Bernie was done as soon as Saints, uh, I mean, like the the proof was in the pudding in, in uh, South Carolina, because I think what I had assumed and a lot of others had assumed is that there were a bunch of uh, uh, in South Carolina, particularly uh, black voters uh, and sort of down really mobile uh, uh, Democrats everywhere who had bought the line on Bernie that he was unelectable until that point. And who, after Nevada, would be like, oh, he's the guy. And then, you know, because they want to be on the team, would just go to Bernie and be like, he's a guy. He's the safe harbor because look what had happened here. 
which is essentially what happened with Obama after he won Iowa. He gave a lot of black voters in, uh, in South Carolina permission to vote for him because it wasn't going to be a wasted vote. Uh, and then, because like right before South Carolina had been that astounding performance in Nevada, which was like the Bernie case study, like Nevada is a state that is not like we talk about diverse states, but a lot of them are not representative of the nation as a whole. Nevada is like the United States demographically and, and the electorate downwardly mobile working class. And look what they did. You know, it's like, this is going to happen. And all the talking heads freaked out, uh, fucking, uh, uh, Joe Scarborough and fucking, uh, Chris Matthews are going to commit Harry Carey on live television because of it. But then South Carolina happened, and boom. Two things occurred. One, that mass of, uh, of black voters didn't uh, shift to Bernie. Uh, but way more importantly, the homeowning Southern Democrats, uh, homeowning white Southern Democrats, sorry, of North Carolina, which there are a lot of now, especially since the Last thirty years of the uh, of the research triangle has created these like educated suburbs. They all came out and in as as a person voted for Biden, the representative of the party, stripped of identity, uh, stripped of narrative, stripped of anything. Because at that point, Biden was a skeleton. He'd been stripped clean like a fucking piranha uh, by by a school of piranha. But all the alternatives to Bernie represented some niche. Uh, Buttigieg was gay. Kamala was every fucking POC known to man. Uh, the, the, the other white guys were just randos who had personality cults. The only one who spoke, the only one who represented something that transcended the failed, bespoke, uh, uh, individualized um, uh, niches of the sort of post-Obama uh, Democratic coalition had no uh, purchase. So they voted for the party, which was Biden. And once that once that evidence was there that, oh, we do have someone who we can all go behind and can expect them to win. We didn't think it was Biden because we were thinking, oh, the candidate is unpopular. Nobody likes the candidate. Who gives a shit? It's what he represented. He represented Obama and therefore the Democratic Party, which is what homeowning whites wanted. They did not want socialism. You want to talk that Bernie was either too uh, like socially conservative or not uh, socially conservative enough. Like that is what the culture warriors who picked on the carcass of the campaign wanted, who and who wanted to make keep this high up, the sugar high up of, of political arguments with stakes fought over. Was he too socially conservative, too socially liberal? Did he wear the? Did he not wear the flag pin enough, or should he have called for the abolition of prisons? Uh, and, and like sex worker legalization or whatever. None of that mattered. Bernie was identified with the way he wanted it to be and the way everybody on the campaign wanted it to be. He was identified with the messages that he talked about all the time because that's what regular people were hearing, not people on the fucking internet, people who watch television and people who talk to people who watch television what, what, from ads, commercials, and news. And what they said, and what they all said the same thing, Bernie was associated with shit like Medicare for All, which Democratic voters... They told, uh, of course, they told uh, pollsters they all supported that idea, but a lot of them said it was unrealistic. Uncoincidentally, the ones who said it was unrealistic tend to be 
the homeowning, well-off portion of the Democratic Party who don't really need health insurance to be free and who imagine a free health insurance would either be lower in quality or cost them more. That might not be true. That might be propaganda, but they're propagandized, as we all are in America. And those people were like, we're not voting for fucking Bernie Sanders. And so they voted for the party, rejecting all the identity people. And then Obama could make the call. It's Joe. I didn't even want him to run. I told him not to run again. I begged him, and he did it again. Uh, and then he won. And then, or then he's still, he's still standing, because he's the one who represents the party. As soon as that happened, it was over. How many old people died by going to the voting booths because Joe Biden told them to? That is a question, a live one. Uh, and it speaks to, you know, the, the character of the people in that party. But it's not relevant to what the outcomes were going to be. The, the path for Bernie was always getting people who don't normally vote in those kind of things. Well, he didn't get enough of them. Maybe if they'd spent every dime they collected in donations on the street teams to talk to people instead of commercials. Because I kind of think every single dollar spent by Bernie uh, on ads, on, ran on television, was basically wasted money. Maybe you need like a certain amount just to keep name recognition up, but... The vast majority of that money should probably have gone to hire. And they had these people. They, they did have a deal where they were hiring people who like worked in the service industry and stuff to talk to their coworkers, which is very smart. But it needed to be way bigger. The problem is it's still a traditional Democratic campaign. It has needs that have to be serviced by people with experience. And those people have ways of doing this. And those networks are already created. And you can only fight against them so much. Ooh, odds of a military takeover of the United States. In the long term, I think 100%. If we don't get a nuclear war with China first. I don't think it'll be a fascist dictatorship. I've said that before, and I really do believe it. I think it would be more like a, uh, a Thailand or Egyptian style. All right, let's knock this stuff off. We have a fucking uh, supply chain to administer type of uh, dictatorship. Pol politics will still exist, but in the states. Because people are already moving, voting with their feet to move to states that support their politics. And that is where political, that's what's going to take over for political uh, conflict when we can no longer resolve issues where we are now, uh, is going to be replaced by just one party states doing whatever they want in response to one another, dueling banjo style, which is what we have now. California and Texas, Florida and New York outbidding each other uh, in performative uh, and punitive social um, uh, social uh, policy. And both of them uh, making it illegal to be poor at the same time. You know, it's funny with Obama, though. People, When he came in, people said, like, he could be the next FDR. And the thing is, even with the reform, even with the terrible, terrible job he did in recovering from the collapse in 20, 2008, uh, he was still so identified with like rescue and such just a, a, a disarming and pleasant person in like in his 
a presentation that if we did not have term limits, even in this world, he, we would be in the getting ready for the fourth Obama administration. Obama would be running for his fourth term and he would be comfortably up on his opponents. Probably would be Trump running again after losing big time. Although maybe not. Because if Obama had gotten to run for a third term, he would have crushed Trump by, we. you can't say like Alf Landon uh, levels because that that's we were too polarized for that. But Bush in 88? Like a real ass kicking? Highly possible if Obama runs against Trump, who would have been the nominee probably in 2016, because like at that point they were all crazy, and uh, Trump would have still wanted to run, or maybe he wouldn't have because he would have been afraid of Trump in a way that he or afraid of Obama in a way that he wasn't afraid of Hillary. Either way, whoever runs against him is a loon who gets killed, and then they would get killed again. And now this is a wild one. But maybe one of the reasons Obama did such a bad job and seemed so checked out even while he was president and now just doesn't seem to care is because he knew that he could never really be FDR because he could only get two terms. And FDR isn't FDR after two terms, really. You know, he had to win. He had to fight World War II to retroactively vindicate the, the uh, New Deal, which was still an open question because the Depression was still going on when World War I started after his two terms in office. So a two-term FDR, if a Republican wins and we don't go into World War II, or we botch World War II, we don't end the Depression or uh, save democracy, and the whole New Deal is kind of embarrassment, and FDR is a loser, even with two terms. So if Obama's looking at the down the barrel of this generational crisis and knows he's only going to get eight years, uh, why bother trying to be FDR? It's way harder and way more dangerous. But of course, like this is the butterfly effect thing. This isn't the Obama we have. Our Obama would never do that. Obama, our Obama never cared about anything. But he was made in a world where FDR, uh, that where they where the counter revolution to the New Deal included term limits. Like you can't the twenty fifth, I believe, amendment. Somebody correct me. Uh, that limits term that limits terms was a conservative reaction to the New Deal, part of the Taft Hartley Act Red Scare reaction to the New Deal coalition uh, and the experience of winning World War II as allies to the Soviet Union. And so, in a world where we get term limits, we get. Well, we had a strangled American socialist project uh, and a truncated American progress towards social democracy turned reactionary after the inevitable global crisis uh, uh, of uh, energy imbalance that hits in the 70s. 22nd Amendment. And so in this world, we get that Obama. The don't give a shit, here's my summer playlist, good luck burning to death, Obama. But maybe 
in the world where there's still uh, you can still get four, three or four terms, we get a different Obama. You know, I don't know. It's just it, I'm not saying it's the cause. I'm saying it's symbolic of why, in general, the whole thing was fucked from the get go. And by this late date, it's hard to even countenance counterfactuals. But it is interesting that we'd definitely be in Obama's fourth term by now. He would be more hated than ever by the people who hate him, but there wouldn't be any more of them than there were. It would be, a, it's a, it's a, it is for the most part uh, a aging and dying movement surrounding extractive capital in parts of the country that are drying up and blowing away. It's being concentrated in, you know, uh, in, states that are big enough to, you know, turn themselves into uh, sort of libertarian fucking uh, fallout Vegas level uh, banana republics like Florida and Texas. But, you know, we're seeing already that though, though that, that uh, platform is fundamentally uh, undermined. They're not insuring anything in Florida anymore. And now, and, and the Republicans are saying, oh, these are woke insurance companies. It's like, okay, yeah. Famously woke insurance companies. Like, they don't, they aren't the people who don't give a fuck if you uh, like them or not because you need them. There is not a company that is, I mean, I'm sure they do divert, diversity shit for uh, human resources and tort reasons. They don't want to get sued. Same reason all these companies do that stuff, not because they don't want to get sued. So all this is falling apart. Yeah, they're fleeing California too because of the wildfires. So like the social basis for all these things are collapsing. Wow, they're revving up. Who knows? Who knows what happens? I'm either dying or I am just filling myself with dread and creating a world where I would rather just keel over now than deal with the future. But the thing that prevents me from doing that is love, which I know exists. And since it exists, uh, salvation is inevitable, regardless of anything that we can't control. All right, let's do one deck of cards here. It's also true, fentanyl exists, you know. Uh, we got a warbird here. The F-117A Stealth Fighter. I remember these guys. I remember how ugly they looked. I was like, this is a not a cool-looking airplane. You're never going to see Pete Maverick Mitchell riding one of these things around. Invisible to radar. The F... Yeah, I'm sure. The F... Wouldn't one of these get shot down in Serbia? Uh, the F-111... Uh, the, the F-117A... F-117A... Uh, is designed to sneak inside enemy defenses and attack high-priority military targets. Uh, in Operation Desert Storm, it was part of the first wave of aircraft inside Iraq. Destroying radar installations and aircraft on the ground, it paved the way for the massive airstrike to come. The stealth attack fighter employs a variety of modern weaponry and is guided by the most up-to-date navigation and attack system. Damn. Manufacturer Lockheed, speed 455 miles per hour. Range 460 miles. Combat. Armament, TV or laser-guided missiles or bombs or anti-radiation missiles. Crew of one. Ah, all right, here we go. Another military asset. The USS Theodore Roosevelt. 
Very appropriate they named a fucking, uh, they named an aircraft carrier after this guy. He loved big ships. He sent the Great White Fleet around the world to announce America's military dominance. Part of his big stick policy. Just waving the hog around like, hey, we're on the big block. And it's appropriate because it was during FDR's term in office that the United States officially surpassed England and Germany as the, like the biggest economy in the world. So it's like, that's the coming out party. Alfred Thayer Mahan, The Influence of Sea Power on History. Incredibly influential book. One of the very few books that gets mentioned in like a high school textbook. Now, of course, a lot of that ends up being, it ends up generating a false historical idea. And it contributes to our greater tendency towards being idealists in general. Because, like, how do they teach uh, America's, like, imperial coming out at the turn of the century? Well, this guy, Alfred Thayer Mahane, he wrote Influence of Sea Power in History. And he pointed out how important sea power was to establishing dominance and trade routes and stuff. And then they say, well, that book, you know, it was part of a general trend in these directions. And then it was read by people like FTR. And, you know, now this is, there is good pedagog pedagogy here because if you're trying to talk about a general trend that has been generated by material conditions changing, you want to pick something like a book as emblematic. People were thinking this way. And here's a book you can read to understand how they were thinking. But it gives the impression when casually asserted that it was the reading of the book that led people to create an American uh, deep uh, water Navy. No, it was the imperatives of America's expansionary, in, uh, 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 the imperative America's expansionary telios. America must expand. It is on only America if it is expanding. This is what differs it from European. Now you can say, that, I'm sorry, this is what differs it, makes it differ from post-Westphalian European states that emerged from. Because the Westphalian settlement said, that's the end of uh, uh, enlargement as imperative. If we keep doing that, we're going to keep destroying the continent. So instead, we're going to accept that these are separate countries that exist. There's going to be greater and lesser influence, but we're not going to, no one's going to take the whole thing over anymore. But of course, while you're making capitalism, it's creating a lot of social conflict. Now it can't go out as much, so it goes, vents off to the United States. Where the free real estate allows it to turn into a live and unchallenged social premise that powers our entire political system, the constitutional order, and the political system that emerges on top of it. So what Thayer Mahan represents, influence of sea powers in history, is just Americans in the context of having hit the edge of the continent, re-understanding and redefining expansion. So that book is part of it, but what it isn't is the thing that moved it. But how we remember it and how we stack events as a culture is that that's what did it because we have to impose idealism uh, because that's where our ideas about what we are as a country matter. Because it's only in the realm of ideas that America having 6% of the world population and consuming half of its resources makes sense, is uh, unquestionably good and must be pursued to the end of time.
Now, other countries, other people might want to expand, but they're limited. And so they have to deal with it and they have to make, uh, they have to forge a social peace with their own class. Uh, the class, they have to forge a social peace within the class conflict that they have internally. And that has to do away with expansion over time. And it took massive bloodshed in Europe to get there, even after Westphalia was established, because you ended up back to conflict and domination over territory, only overseas territory instead of uh, European territory by the uh, late 19th, early 20th century. Only America could stabilize this stuff into a coherent and continuing social vision. Like in World War II, Germany and Japan were like guys who showed up after last year's championship where Airbud won. And they got their own dog. They spent the summer breeding. They, they spent the summer looking for the perfect specimen of uh, jockish golden retriever uh, athletic ability. They found one. They said, this is a guy. And then they trained it rigorously for a year. And then they come with this young, just beautiful uh, golden retriever, ready to win the championship. And they get told by the commissioner, oh, no, the dogs can't play basketball. And you say, but there's no rule against the dogs playing basketball. And they say, yeah, but they put one in. Sometime uh, in the late 19th century, as all of the available territories remaining in the world were carved up after the Berlin Conference, it was understood that, all right, no more massive imperial uh, 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 ventures. You're not going to try to grab a bunch of land. This is all spoken for, either by one of the countries that matter or uh, by territory that was claimed by one of the countries that matter. And so now Germany or Japan are fucked. They got this dog that they bred to play basketball, and they can't play basketball. So they tried anyway. And they got slapped on the nose. But what's important is because their worldview was the same fundamentally as that of the Western allies, the democratic allies, the United States and, and uh, Britain and France, they, instead of being defeated and uh, having their power structures overturned, their power structures were simply turned into junior partners. The assumption being, look, you guys aren't going to get to run the world, but you'll be taken care of in a greater world empire. Like the way that the Mongols would uh, take over a, a, a warring neighboring uh, tribe and incorporate them into the Mongol horde. And they've been dominant since World War II, and they got the bomb, which meant they were never going to lose to the Soviet ch challenge or to the emerging uh, peoples of the Third World. Which is why that war, 1914 to 1945, was the war that the... Uh, it was the end of the Battle of Armageddon that you could argue began with the first 30 years' war in Europe. And it ended with... Uh, although... I, I wouldn't say that because there was no good side. There was only reactionary Catholic uh, uh, feudalism or this emergent Protestant uh, capitalism. Nothing that could be liberatory. Nothing that could truly bring heaven to earth. 
But World War I had that. It was birthed by the global communist movement. Now, that doesn't mean everybody who fought on the communist side was an angel or a good person, even. Many of them were demonic hell beasts who would belong in hell if there was one. And I think a lot of them are going to spend time there and have spent time there. Uh, but that there was this alternative. There was this uh, millenniary horizon that could have seen violence, bloodshed, horror, millions dead, as happened in our world but a horizon at the other side of it, uh, a heaven on earth to be built. We got satanic Satan triumphant and uh, the end yeah, of that horizon and the uh, slow and steady building of hell on earth. That's a bummer, but we're all still here and there are other worlds than this. All right, Theodore Roosevelt. The newest of the U.S. Navy's complement of carriers in Operation Desert Storm, the Theodore Roosevelt was four Geared steam turbines and four shafts powered by two mo modern nuclear reactors. The largest carrier in the Red Sea and the Persian Gulf, the ship is equipped with the latest defense missile systems. Home port is Norfolk, Virginia. The Nimitz-class carriers have a service life of at least 13 years. Displacement, 96,700 tons. Full load. Length, 1,089 uh, uh, feet. Speed, 30 plus knots. Aircraft, 85, good Lord. Crew, 5,084 and 72 Marines. From what I understand, those uh, aircraft carriers are basically useless now thanks to, super, to hypersonic missiles. So, oh boy. Let's give it up for one of the crucial elements of the post-war American Imperial Coalition. Good old Republic of Turkey. This brings us back to the very beginnings of Chapo when we were uh, much more Turkey-focused than we are now. Historically, Turkey has tried to remain distant from the political conflicts in the Middle East. However, as a neighbor of Iran, Iraq, and Syria, this independence has been difficult to preserve. No kidding. Turkey has been subjected to terrorist attacks linked to the Palestinian and Armenian movements. The Kurds get nothing? The Kurds get nothing. They were only a few years away in 91 from carrying out a devastating ethnic cleansing of Kurds in southwestern Turkey, which is happening the same time, Chomsky, Chomsky always liked to point this out, was happening at the exact same time that Slobodan Milosevic was uh, ethnic cleansing uh, Bosnia. And of course, Turkey did not get bombed. They got bombs from us. Uh, it is a member of the United Nations, NATO, and the coalition forces. Geographic area, uh, 300,947 square miles. Population, 56.7 million. Languages, Turkish, Kurdish, and Arabic. Predominant religion, Sunni Islam. Capital of Ankara. Government type, Republican parliamentary democracy. Absolutely. Head of government, Prime Minister Yidlam Akabut. Now that's changed. The president is now the head of state, or the head of government too, I believe. They changed that recently. Um, good old Turkey. It's interesting. They might kick them out of NATO, though, because their demand to let Sweden in is to join the EU, and the EU, I don't think, would ever allow that. What do I think of uh, Ocelan? He's the guy who uh, 
He's the one guy who read Murray Buchkin. I know that they need him in NATO, but at the same time, you can't have them in the EU. Like, the U.S. has helped... Uh, the U.S. and uh, EU have, like, really humored Erdogan a lot because they need him to keep a cork on those migrants there. And that just opens the barn door. They, they can't do that, I don't think, because they're terrified of the political response to any more immigration in Europe. You can say that that's wrong. It is, obviously. Uh, but it is a, a predominant political terror. Oh, they got a, a loan. Ah, smart. See, there you go. That's a smart move. You, you threaten them with this Hobson's choice, and then you give them an out. Nice, fat IMF loan. The Arab League we got here. The Arab League. Good old Arab League. The Arab League was formed in Cairo, Egypt, on March 22, 1945. Today, it is composed of 20 countries from the Middle East and Africa. The PLO is also a member. The purpose of the League is to promote political, economic, and cultural unity among its members. They're doing a great job. Uh, yeah, no, Turkey is in NATO. I'm saying. I'm just saying that, that uh, the U they really want to bring in Sweden, and they do not want what Erdogan asked for, which was EU membership for Turkey in response. The issue of whether to send Arab troops to participate in Operation Desert Storm split the league. The majority of its members, however, supported defending Saudi Arabia from possible attack by Iraq. Yeah, they really turned on Saddam. They were like, we do not know this man. But literally everybody did that to Saddam, including us, after having supported him all the way through the Iran-Iraq war. Of course, we'd also armed and supported Iraq in that war. Just is like the evilest thing you can do. We've got Bangladesh. Oh, man. Did we have Bangladesh already? How are there going to be two Bangladeshes? I think we got Bangladesh, which is very funny to get Bangladesh twice. Bangladesh was part of the British India until 1947. Then, for almost 25 years, it was known as East Pakistan, united with West Pakistan, now Pakistan, by religion, Islam, but separated by a thousand miles of Indian territory. What a great idea that was. Independent since 1974, Bangladesh is one of the world's poorest countries. It is a member of the United Nations, UNESCO, and the coalition forces. Yeah. Oh, it's a, oh yeah. Bangladesh, ooh, very low to the water. Not good. A lot of people very close to water. 55,598 square miles, population of 114.8 million people. Languages Bengal and Bengali and English, predominant religion, Islam and Hinduism. Capital Dhaka, government type, republic, head of government, prime minister, Kazi Zafir Ahmad. Ahmed, rather. We help them do a genocide, uh, or we help Pakistan do a genocide of Bangladesh in the 70s, because the local Bangladeshis, what a surprise, didn't want to be ruled from Islamabad, uh, and they rebelled, and there was an ongoing massacre, but because the president of Pakistan was the U.S. back channel to China, uh, Kissinger and Nixon uh, supported them and, and all the way through, and it wasn't until the Indians invaded and, and declared war and just kicked the shit out of the Pakistani army that they stopped killing people.
it's amazing that the two military interventions in the 20th century that you could really say were motivated, at least largely by civilian concerns, not entirely, but like more than half, at least half, and more importantly than motivated, had the effect of literally stopping mass murder. As opposed to a lot of these wars that we say, oh, we, we saved all these lives. It's like, no, you did not. You killed more people than would have died otherwise. The two of them, India's invasion of, Pac- of, uh, of East Pakistan, and uh, later in the 70s, Vietnam's invasion of Cambodia, were both opposed by the United States. And uh, in both cases, we supported the, the genociders. Speaking of Kissinger and back channels, he was talking to Xi today. They they drove his they put his 100-year-old ass on an airplane for 20 hours or whatever to get him to China, which is wild. You really like you really got to wonder what's going on there. Uh, okay, we got one of the coolest planes there is, the C130 Hercules. Look at this bad boy. Look at the big bad boy. A medium-range tactical airlift aircraft, the C-130 Hercules, was designed to transport cargo and personnel within the Operation Desert Storm area. It can carry more than 42,000 pounds of cargo or cargo passenger load. It can accommodate 64 combat-ready paratroops. As an aeromedical airlift, it can carry 74 litter patients and two medical attendants. Oh, Lord, he thick. Manufacturer, Lockheed, Georgia. Speed, 374 miles per hour. Range, 4,891 miles. Primary function, transportation of crew and uh, cargo and personnel. Crew of five. That's a big daddy. That's a big old plane. And now we've got the A-6 Intruder, another airplane. Another warbird here. Uh, capable of delivering long-range strikes against heavily defended targets, the A-6 Intruder can also find, track, and destroy small moving targets in all weather conditions and provide close air support for ground troops. In the air war during Operation Desert Storm, the Intruder flew missions deep into Iraqi territory to destroy important military installations. So this thing just wrecked military installations. If it was used for close air support, maybe, but we'll see. I don't know. I don't know the record of the intruder. Manufacturer, Grumman Aerospace. Range, 644 miles per hour. Or speed, 644 miles per hour. Range, 1,221 miles. Combat. Armament, up to 30 bombs. Sidewinder, Maverick, or Harpoon missiles. Crew of two. Damn. Badass. All right, we've got a fighting ship, the Midway. This is a very hard. This has been a very hardware-heavy deck, which I enjoy. A lot of hardware in this deck. We've got yes, the Midway, a veteran carrier scheduled to be retired in late 1991. The Midway was ordered from her specific duty to the, one day from retirement. Damn. Damn. Uh, the smallest of the U.S. carrier fleet, her, aw, cute little retirement age baby, aw, adorable little, uh, death pe- platform. 
Uh, her complement of aircraft through numerous sorties against the Iraqi military in southern Iraq and Kuwait during the Operation Desert Storm. Home port until she returned to the United States for retirement is Hokusuka, Japan. Displacement, 67,000 tons, fully loaded. Length, 1,600 feet. Speed, 32 knots. Aircraft, 75. Crew, 4,686 and 72 Marines. There are those 72 Marines again. What do they do on the boats? If they're not going to get deployed, do they just dick around? Do they have them swab the deck at least if I can keep them from just getting it underfoot? And now we've got Middle East history, colonial. Oh boy, time for some awkwardness. Awkwardness. Oh boy. Yep. The colonial history of the Middle East. Oh boy. I guess we have to talk about it. Yeah, the Arab lands in the Middle East belong to the Turkish Ottoman Empire for 400 years. I do love that phrasing. They accept. Yeah, they belong to the Ottoman Empire. They were the property of the Ottoman Empire. That was that was right. And then during World War I, many Arabs fought with the British and French against the Turks, hoping to gain their independence. When the war ended, the British took mandate control over Iraq, Jordan, and Palestine, while the French claimed Lebanon and Syria. The Arabs felt betrayed. Why would they feel betrayed? Absurd. Oh, that's right. The, the Marine who put Casey Ryback in jail. And then he got just murked. Unceremoniously just shot. Didn't even get, like, last words. He said, in the, in the reefer. And then... Pfft. I believe he also got killed. He was one of the um, deputies under Sam Gerard in both the Fugitive and U.S. Marshals. And he gets killed by Robert Downey Jr. in U.S. Marshals, whoever that actor was. If anyone knows, throw it in there. Um, although their lands later gained independence, way to go, guys, the colonial period left a legacy of distrust and bitterness towards the West. I mean, I guess. They, they're giving them, I'll, give, I'll give them credit for at least acknowledging it, you know? Like, they were, they were mad. All right, um, two more here. Oh, government, oh boy. The Saudi Arabia system. This is my favorite diet. I love, I love to get on the Saudi Arabia system. Fuck paleo, fuck keto, Saudi Arabia system. Yeah, how's that work? How, uh, hey, uh, uh, hey, hey dem democratic guys who love democracy, how does your very close ally Saudi Arabia's system work? Uh, Saudi Arabia is an absolute monarchy based on Islamic law. Yeah, that's right. Not the petty whim of a clan of fucking hillbillies. It has no written constitution and no parliament. Whoops. A council of ministers formed in 1953 is under the leadership of the king. Islamic law, Sharia, is enforced. Alcohol is prohibited. Not everywhere. And the public activities of women are restricted. Purda. Saudi kings have great power within the Islamic world because they control Mecca and Medina and administer the annual Muslim pilgrimage to those holy cities. It's true. And they're our best friends in the world. And they did 9-11. Maybe on our behest. Maybe because they thought we'd enjoy it, and we did. Type. Hereditary monarchy in El Saud family. National holiday. September 23rd. Head of state. King Fad bin Abdul Aziz Al Saud. Political parties. Prohibited. <laughs> Suffrage. None. Yeah, they are making golf great again, so give it to them on that. And here we got last card. Oman. Oh, boy. These guys love to keep to themselves. It's apparently very pretty there. It's like the most uh, geographically diverse and interesting place on the uh, Persian Gulf. 
I guess there's a Gulf of Oman. Never mind. Uh, the Sultanate of Oman. The economy of Oman is based principally on, principally on petroleum, which constitutes 95% of its exports. Goddamn. Its principal trading partners include the United Kingdom, United States, and China. With a landscape that is largely barren, it still supports some sheep and cattle grazing. Good for you, Oman. Oman's agricultural products are dates, fruit, and cereal. And it is a member of the United Nations, UNESCO, and the Coalition Forces, baby. Geographic area, 82,000 square miles. Population, 1.5 million. Language, Arabic, English, Baluchi, and Urdu. Predominant religions, Islam, Ibadi, some Sunni and Shia, Hinduism. Yeah, they've also got a weird Islam variant down there that's like all by itself. Like a, like a fine wine. Capital, Muscat. Government type, absolute monarchy, baby. Head of government, Sultan Qaboos bin Saad. I th is he the same guy? Because I know that Qaboos, he was like dying forever, Franco style. Okay, so there we go. Another deck down. We're getting to the end of this set, honestly. There aren't that many left. I think we're going to be able to go through them all, which will be cool. He died recently, I thought so. Oh, RIP. I'll definitely see Oppenheimer, but uh, not right away. I got to get that. I got to get that 70 millimeter performance, baby. I'm a buck. I'm a pig. I follow the, the the vision of the director. I fucks with that stuff. What else am I doing with my life other than curating experiences? And I and I owe it to myself to curate this one exquisitely. But uh, I'm sure I will have takes. Honestly, if we did a, like a deck of like upper deck or flare cards from the '90s, I could probably have a good time with that because I was big into baseball back then when I was a teenager and uh, an early teen. I had like a big, big shoebox full of baseball cards. Oppenheimer conditions created Barbie conditions. It's true. The plastic world that Barbie lives in, the artificial dead world where like live engagement with the world around us, live engagement with others has been replaced by a synthetic, literally plastic petroleum uh, replica. It was, that was birth the Trinity because a nuclear powered capitalism would never be defeated on its own terms, you know, by another state formation that emerged from European modernity, which is what, the dream of communism was uh, the extension and completion of the Judeo-Christian project of uh, synthesizing social relations across Europe, the United States, uh, then the New World, and then the whole of the world. And the world that was built by that nuclear blast was one of oil, petroleum. Petroleum dollars powering the economy, petroleum coating every surface, turning us into dolls of ourselves that we play with and call living. All right, guys, guys, guys and gals, dolls, Barbies, Oppenheimers, see you later.